it's a real privilege to be here speaking on the book of Galatians. Um, uh, this series about um, being uh, getting free and staying free uh, is Galatians is a, is a perfect book for that. We know that God values freedom for the sake of freedom, which is really interesting because most virtues that you read in the, about in the Bible, God values for the sake of his glory. So for God to say that I value freedom for the sake of freedom is interesting. Not to say that it's not for God's glory. It's just to say, huh, there's really something to this. Like the concept of freedom is, is just apparently extremely vital to what it is that God has for us and, uh, um, and what it is that, how it is that he wants us to know him. Thanks, it's perfect. Yeah, I appreciate it. Everybody see that all right? Yeah. Great. Um, yeah, I had just had a moment of brilliance while I was sitting over here. And, you know, you never want to miss your moments of brilliance. So uh, we're going so we're going to write it down. Uh, the, uh, uh, so the book of Galatians is a perfect book for that. However, Paul doesn't actually get to the concept of freedom until uh, j- th- chapter three, chapter four ish. Um, he spends the first couple of chapters, I, I, in my opinion, the first full three chapters setting up why he has the right to tell you about freedom. And why he has the right to tell you what it is that's coming. Galatians is probably the first book that Paul wrote. And so he himself is, is still establishing his apostolic authority. Which is what you've been learning about the last couple of uh, Sundays that you've been in, in this series. Is Paul's establishment of his own apostolic authority. Th- this is why you should listen to me. Um, now in what it was that you just heard uh, uh, Christine uh, bring to us in the, the teaching. This is important uh, because... Um, we have to let the text stand as the text, right? So if, if you have your Bibles and you're not already in Galatians chapter 2, go there. Um, because what happens here is not something that we read about very often in the epistles. So the New Testament is broken down into two major categories. Uh, there's narrative literature and then there's uh, uh, um, letters, essentially. And so the, the letters generally explain the story. So you've got the Gospels, you've got the book of Acts, a lot of story in there. Hebrews has some story, Revelation has some story. But the rest of the epistles that exist in the New Testament generally are for the sake of explaining the impact of that story or the depth of that story, the theology in that story, what it is that we read. But the epistles themselves don't actually contain a lot of narrative. However, here in Galatians chapter 2, there's a pretty amazing narrative. Where if you look at the New Testament and you say, like, who are the chief, two chief leaders um, that God pulls out of the epistles? It's going to be Peter and Paul, right? Peter and Paul in that order. So we see Peter come on the scene first and act authoritatively first. Paul follows in, in what he opens up. Um, and so what happens here in Galatians 2 is actually a story of conflict between two leaders, more than it is a, a, like a teaching on a point of doctrine. Now, it gets to that point. However, it takes an indirect route. It doesn't actually, the text never actually explicitly says what it's talking about because what the text is explicitly talking about is the concept of the fear of man versus the fear of God. Right? Fear of man versus fear of God. And Peter and Paul uh, have an experience together publicly, apparently, which must have just been amazing to watch. These two like giants of, of uh, the Christian faith, uh, the, the, the two primary apostles that the church looks to for its direction have an open conflict in front of everybody. Remember when like mom and dad would get into a fight at the dinner table? <laughs> and you just saw, maybe that's us now, you know? And you're sort of like, is, 
is this done yet? You know, and and then mom and dad, you try and like patch things up. That was between us. That wasn't for you guys. We're sorry. We should have done that away from you. You know, but in the meantime, it's like this strange, like, I, I wonder if everything's okay. You know, that, that's what I picture happening in this text. Uh, when Cephas, verse 11, Cephas comes to Antioch. Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. I opposed him. I, I opposed, this is Paul talking about Peter in just such black and white terms, like, yeah, um, so the other uh, spiritual giant in the faith um, was just in open sin, so I decided to tell him about it and then write a letter about him to you. And he's not even there to, like, defend himself or anything. Um, before certain men, verse 12, uh, came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. The rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. When I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So there are two major perspectives that we have here in this text, in this story. One is Peter's perspective. The second is Paul's perspective. And then we're going to tie it together with John's perspective. John's not present. However, I think that John's the one that can really bring this thing to uh, a point of conclusion for us. So we're going to take the long way to get there. All right. So if you have your text, just flip back a few pages to Acts chapter 4. We're going to read a good portion of God's word this morning. So if you have your Bible, um, it's too many words to put up on the screen. So stick with me. Um, Public reading of scripture, in my opinion, for Christians, becomes like an engine on a jet plane. Uh, It's sort of like a drone, you know, and you get used to it. And you don't realize how loud the plane is until you land and they shut it off, you know. Um, And I just, I, I find that we as Christians, a lot of times we get used to church and we get used to the Bible, and uh, the the reading of Scripture becomes sort of like a drone on a plane. And God forbid that happens, right? So let's all set our intention and our mind, bring the text right here to the front, and let's not uh, check out or let that become just sort of like something we've heard before. Let's let the text stay real and fresh for us. Acts chapter 4, verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. All right. So there's some amazing stuff happening here. And Peter... And John are the ones who are leading uh, this this teaching and this this exploration of the gospel, particularly based on the resurrection of Jesus. And it's, I just love the text. The text says they were greatly annoyed at them. Like, would that fly today? Could a policeman get annoyed with you and throw you in prison and beat you? Right? <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that interesting? Um, I guess technically, yes. <laughs> On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. When they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Now remember, this is Peter's perspective that we're looking at here first, right? So then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you, to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. 
This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. When they commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do to these men? That a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We can't deny that. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. Do you see what the rulers say in this spot here? Peter and John just healed a lame man in the name of Jesus. Like a, a guy who couldn't walk can now walk. And the leaders say, in order that that doesn't spread anymore, in, in order that good things don't happen to the people that we lead, let's make sure, like, do you see how corrupt the concept and a spirit of religion can be? To where it, it stops good, it, it blocks good things from being desired by leaders. In order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, right? Here we go. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we had seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. All right, so Peter and John stand before these people with all the power in the world to hurt them and say, look, whether or not we're supposed to obey you or obey God, we're going to obey God. You can take that up with yourself in your own heart, but we can't help but even talk about what it is that God is doing. This is the boldness with which Peter is presenting himself. Now, Peter and Paul have two different callings. Peter's called to serve the Jewish people, to call them out of their bondage, to call them out of their uh, um, legalistic thinking, to call them out of their law-based life. Paul is called to the Gentiles to take the gospel to the Gentiles, right? the people who are, are not Jews and who have, who have not historically been known as the chosen people of God. This is a big deal for Peter because the question then becomes like, what's the best way to reach the Jewish people then? And the question in the book of Acts, not the book of Acts, is to what degree do we make Gentiles uh, adhere to some of the Jewish customs? Like to, uh, to what degree are some of the old Jewish laws still ways that people should follow Jesus? And we know that, well, we'll see what Paul believes. Here's what Peter, an encounter Peter has. Acts chapter 10. Turn over a few pages to Acts chapter 10. Now, we know that Peter and the other Jewish people lived by very, very strict dietary laws, right? The, the strictest dietary laws you've ever seen. You can't eat this. You can't eat that. One thing you can't eat is like flying or creeping things. You can't eat uh, reptiles. Um, you're not supposed to eat anything with a cloven hoof. There's a hoof split in half, right? So you've got to be really, really careful. You've got to be really careful about, about what you eat. And this is literally thousands of years of this is how you please God is by eating the right stuff, right? And then Peter, in verse 9, finds himself in Acts 10. The next day, as they were on their journey, approaching the city, about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry. 
and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter said, by no means, Lord, I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. The voice came to him a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. And by the end of the chapter, we see Peter sitting down with a Gentile, uh, expressing the gospel and eating things that he should never have eaten, according to his custom. All right, so Peter is, has these experiences, right? We know him to be a very bold man who can see in black and white terms and be like, I'm not going to obey humans. I am going to obey God. doesn't matter what you say. This is how I'm going to be. We see Peter in Acts chapter 10. God reworks his wiring, right? God reworks his assumptions. He says that what was previously true for you is no longer true anymore. That the very most basic, common, Judaic laws are now done away with in order that the gospel, particularly freedom in the gospel, as we see in Galatians, is what it is that we capitalize on. Right? This is, this is a massive cultural shift. The, the, the depth of this massive cultural shift can't be uh, overstated. Acts 15, verse 1, just a few, pa- few pages over. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Right? That's the primary Jewish trait, is circumcision. Right? And uh, they're saying that you have to be circumcised. They're, they're telling adult Gentile men, if you want to follow Jesus, you need to be circumcised. Right? There's a number of reasons to give pause to that. Um, the most primary of which is not a physical one, though. The primary uh, one is, is a spiritual one. Like, Can we hold Gentiles to an old law is there something that's brought is there a work is there something that a person does to gain grace in god's favor and so the apostles get together verse uh to to make a decision the jerusalem council after paul and barnabas had made no small dissension and debate with them paul and barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question so being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in, gr- in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Right, we can belo- yeah, we should believe in Jesus but we should also keep all the previous laws too, just in case, right? Just in case. Maybe you grew up, uh, I remember growing up as a kid, if you grew up as a, kid, uh, as a church kid, um, I had a phase in my life where like every time somebody gave a salvation message, I just prayed the prayer just in case, right? Like I just wanted to make sure it was all good. You know, I, I didn't realize it up until that point that praying prayers didn't do anything. Uh, and as far as like the work of them, that wasn't the purpose of prayer. <laughs> Salvation wasn't, wasn't a contract that I made with God. It was just, man, I, I hope I get it right. That, that's sort of like what this is. This is the mindset. Yes, definitely believe in Jesus, but also keep all the laws. And, and the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 comes together to, to debate this, particularly the core central one, which is circumcision. 
Verse 6, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter, here we are with Peter still, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. There is no question about what Peter believes. Acts 4, Acts 10, Acts 15, we know that Peter, with boldness, clarity, and substance, knows that salvation and a relationship with Jesus comes by grace through faith and the seal of the Holy Spirit is for all people. The Jewish customs and laws are done away with and this is about freedom and newness in Christ, a law that is held within the Holy Spirit, right? Peter is completely aware of this situation. Paul's perspective that we see about this same thing, now remember, they're about to have a major conflict about what to eat or what not to eat. Paul's perspective uh, you can see really, really easily in a number of different places. Romans 14, verse 5, Paul says, One person esteems one day better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. None of us lives to himself, None, none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. And so Paul makes it very, very simple. He's like, there are questionable things. You should be clear in your own conscience as to what it is that you believe about that and then do that before God. And don't force that on anybody else. And don't judge anybody else for what their conscience is. He says it again in Colossians chapter 2, in verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, worship of angels, visions, being puffed up without reason by sensuality, not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through his joints and ligaments, grows with growth that is from God. All right, so Paul is completely, absolutely clear. What you eat is between you and God. What you don't eat is between you and God. You hold that before God. You do not judge or pass that on to other people. Simple, black and white stuff here. All right, both apostles are on the same page. Then Galatians 2 hits. And something goes wrong, right? Something is off. So we go back to Galatians 2. And we see this conflict between these two giants of the faith where Peter is confronted by people who actually do the opposite of what Paul just said. They do judge. And they do think that their conscience should be everybody's conscience. And they do think that what they hold as being sacred to them should be what everybody holds as being sacred to them. And these are like, these are just basic like principles of conscience and life about what you eat or what you don't eat. And, but Peter has received the word of the Lord, right? I mean, there's no question about what Peter believes. And there's no question about what God has told Peter to be about and how to live. 
everything is clean. And this is a doorway and a gateway for you to be with the Gentiles, people you would normally never be with. But these Judaizers come. They come from the really conservative area of Jerusalem where James is the leader. And James is always being confronted by these guys. And he's in, that's why he writes the book of James, which is another sermon. Uh, Peter is now confronted by these people from that area. These people come from him and they, Peter, you're, you're eating unclean things. The Peter that we know would stand up in that situation and say, yeah, what of it? How could you stand there and restrict these people to having to come to grace through eating the right stuff or by being circumcised? Right? Peter would normally have stood up, confronted them, and been about what it was that God told him to be about, which is all things are now clean for him to eat. Peter doesn't. Peter gets afraid. And he pulls back from what it is that God had told him to be about. Furthermore, and this is the dangerous part, like look what else he does in the text. In verses 12 and 13, he takes other people with him, even solid people of the faith, even Barnabas. Like Barnabas actually gets fearful. Have you ever been around people who are really afraid? It's contagious. It's contagious, especially if a leader is afraid. And so there's this strong tension in this situation when Paul shows up, I don't think there's a lot of tension up until then. This is just Peter going in his own heart, oh man, like I am being seriously resisted here. I'm afraid of how I'm being perceived. I am now going to say no to what it is that God told me to do in order to capitulate to these people. And by his example, other people follow him in that sin. And this is a basic basic thing that you and I deal with all the time, which is who are we going to fear? Will we fear people and their opinions and thoughts of us or will we fear God? Here's a truthful principle. What you fear is what you serve. What you fear is what you serve. And there's a false tension that exists. So I brought this whiteboard out, or Josh did, actually, thank you. Because I want to talk about Venn diagrams. Anybody here ever deal with Venn diagrams? Remember psychology in college, or Venn diagrams? Venn diagrams are great. A Venn diagram, uh, you can have more than, more than two circles if you want. You can have as many as you want. However, it's the concept of an overlap is what a uh, Venn diagram is built on. And so it's two concepts, and then it, it's, it's an illustration about the way that they, the way that they interact. And so these, these two concepts... Like there's a concept one, concept two, the overlap, it creates this, uh, it, it ex- it's an explanation of what happens when those two things interact. So uh, a friend of mine bought me a, a, a really funny t-shirt. Um, it says, the circle on the left says, with you. The second circle on the left says, without you. And then there's an arrow that says, Bono can't live here. Right? <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's a, it's a Venn diagram. It's the way that two concepts interact. So on, we could take another one, human, human mind, human behavior, and this area would be called psychology, right? It's, it's the intersection of both the human mind, human reason, and human behavior brings us to this concept of psychology. 
I think that we can create a Venn diagram off of Galatians chapter 2, which I'm sure is what Paul had in mind when he wrote this. Um, so here we have fear is one concept. The other concept is love. All right, the other concept is love. Sorry, you folks can't see this very well. That's what it looks like. There's some fantastic art on the back of this you should see after service. Um, I think that there's a juxtaposition that happens here um, where these two concepts try and mingle and try and interact. And I, I think that what Paul teaches us throughout uh, uh, Galatians 2 um, and uh, 11 to 21 is that when these two concepts interact or when, when we try to make them interact, it produces a false synergy, right? It produces a false overlap that I would suggest, he tells us, is self-justification. And that's what's existing here. Look at your text. So the story leads Paul into a lesson, right? He, he, he gives the story, just like getting good preacher, here's an illustration of something happened, and here's a teaching that comes from it. So he gives a story. He tells us what happens with the conflict. Verse 14, when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if, through, though a Jew, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And then here's the teaching that comes from it. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified. Right? He goes right up to justification. A person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Think about your life. Think about times when you know, when, when you can see an experience in your life where you know you were afraid of a person and so you did something or didn't do something in order to appease that person or in order to please that person. What's going on in your head? What's the conversation that's happening? You're justifying yourself, right? You're justifying yourself. This happened to me once, I mean, I could stay up here and tell you lots of stories about fear of man at work in my life. Um, but just a, a particular one is, um, I don't know, remember if I told you this story or not. Uh, if, if I did, bear with me. I'm getting old. Um, older. The uh, uh, day, I forget what day it was, I was in Walmart, and there was a woman who was walking out, and she was pushing uh, a stroller, and in the stroller was a child, maybe about a year old, but the baby was clearly deformed. Um, and had a, a, a just a very, very large head. And I don't know what the condition was or anything like that, but um, but the baby was uh, was not active either. You know, he was just sort of um, not lifeless, but but just very, very still, right? And um, I could just look at this mom's face and be like, this woman's been through hell and is currently in the midst of it, you know? And I felt the Holy Spirit say, pray for her. Now, it was clear as day. Clear as I'm talking to you right now. Pray for her. And, and pray for the baby. Now, I don't know what it was that God would have had me pray. I didn't do it. Right? 
I, I, I said, I said, no, I mean, I was in Walmart parking lot, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and there I was like, w- you know, lots of people around. I'm going to walk up to this perfect stranger and pray for her and for her baby, which actually is sort of in line with my personality. You know, that's, that's not something that I'm normally hu- hugely a- a- afraid of, but that day I just, and, and so I, I walked past her. I didn't pray for her. And I spent the entire time in Walmart justifying myself to me. Right about why that was, I I was in a rush. I needed to get home. You know, I was just sent there by my wife for a couple of things. Um, You know, she might not have understood. Or what if God didn't do anything? You know, I just, it's just like this self-justifying thing. So I have this desire to love, right? My love intersects my fear. And these two things actually can't be coexistent. Remember the epistle I told you we would end up at was, was John? 1 John chapter 4, verse 18. What does John have to say about these two concepts of fear and love? Perfect love casts out fear, right? And then the, the, the inverse is also true, that where there is fear, there cannot be love. Right? Where there's fear, there cannot be love. You can't love something you're afraid of. You do serve something you're afraid of. You absolutely serve it, but you can't love something that, that you're afraid of. And so, like, in counseling ministry and pastoral counseling, one of the first things that I look for when a couple comes for help is who's afraid of what? Right? Who's afraid of what? Because if they're at all afraid of each other, then that's something that we need to deal with before we can actually get to what they came for. And uh, the fear and the love, when they mix, they produce this horrific thing called self-justification, which Paul tells us actually destroys the work of the gospel. And, like, that's not hyperbole. He's not trying to make a big point that he hopes you remember. Uh, That's a theologically truthful statement that, I mean, look at your text. We know, verse 16, that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And, and so, like, self-justification, it kills the ability for the gospel to be real in our lives. And now we become our own functional savior. What, what I didn't do while I walked through Walmart was receive God's grace for blowing it out in the parking lot. What I did do was walk through Walmart and self-condemned based on my self-justifications, which doesn't make a lot of sense, right? But that's how it works. Because my self-justification makes me feel better about myself until I realize that my feeling better about myself still left that woman without prayer, which then leads to self-condemnation, which then makes me say, why did I do that anyway? Oh, it's because I had good reasons to not pray for her, which then still left her without prayer, so I'm back to condemnation. And it becomes this cycle that I walk in where self-justification produces self-condemnation, which leaves me in this vicious cycle where I'm just running in a circle and I'm looking at myself the whole time. When in reality, did I blow it? Absolutely. And is there grace for that? Well, that sure is what the gospel teaches, right? And so Peter blows it. <laughs> like he, he, he out and outright disobeys the word of the Lord and leads people who are following him astray, away from the truth of the gospel. And Paul sees that it is only through confrontation it is only through 
conflict that this thing can get righted. It is only through truth being brought into the situation. And so on some level, on some level, the way that fear and love interacts, like the amount of conflict that this produces is, is huge. It's such huge conflict that, the, uh, that um, the Apostle John says that the two can't even exist near each other, near one another. In John's mind, this Venn diagram is impossible because the self-justification actually becomes the entire thing. That there, because perfect love casts out fear. Love, uh, perfect love casts out fear. Fear casts out love. Like, these two things cannot exist together. I, I think a lot of what we hear, this is a quick rabbit trail, a lot of what you and I hear, if I were to say, what's the opposite of faith? Or I'm sorry, wh- if I were to say, what's the opposite of fear? A lot of us would say faith. That we need to move in, in boldness and faith. Faith is not the opposite of fear. Love is the opposite of fear. When Peter got afraid, he stopped loving the people who were following him. When Peter got afraid, he stopped loving the people that he was supposed to be having dinner with. When Peter got afraid, he stopped loving himself well because he wasn't identifying himself the way God identifies him. When Peter got afraid, and when you and I get afraid, that fear, it just takes over. Fear is such a loud, loud emotion, and it removes the ability to be loving. Love and fear can, cannot, cannot coexist in our human relationships. It's impossible. Fear is not the, uh, faith is not the opposite of fear. Love is the opposite of fear. And so when we choose fear of man in any given situation, we lose the ability to love. When we choose love, In the face of fear, it casts out that fear, and God can do amazing things. But it's all about seeing yourself the way that God does. Look at the rest of the text. If in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God, right? Paul is rooting himself in his true identity. I... I don't even exist as a person who understands or can agree with that Gentiles should have to eat certain food in order to be approved by God. That's just simply not me. If I ever say that, if I ever believe that, that's a false J. Right? If, if, if that's ever, like the, the J that said no to praying for the lady at Walmart, that's a false J. The scriptures would call that an old man. Right, we'll call that the, the flesh that's not surrendered to the spirit. That, that's not true me. Paul is rooting himself in his identity. Right? He's, talking, he's talking with I personal statements. I, verse 19, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Why? Because here's my truest reality. Verse 20, a very, very famous uh, uh, verse. But leave it in its context and it really starts to take on some serious weight. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And, and the, uh, the power of the gospel at work in real time is what's at risk when we give in to fear. 
When we choose to be afraid of humans, it is the power of the gospel that's lost. The remedy to it is to choose to be who you truly are. I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but it is Christ who lives in me. The life that I now live, I live for him. Because my reality is that I'm dead with him anyway, and therefore alive with him. How does that work? It works in the same way it works for Jesus, which is that God makes us alive together in him. So that self-justification becomes what? Just simple justification in Christ. And the Venn diagram goes away as we are fully ushered into just one big circle that is the love of God. But it is fear of man that will destroy the power of the gospel in your life. It is fear of man that will destroy the power of the gospel at Parker Ford Church. Right, the, the degree to which you and I are willing to live boldly in the truth of what God is doing is the degree to which the gospel can have power in this place. Because when we become afraid of one another, and when we become afraid of the prospective judgments or of the possible conclusions that others draw about us, when we live in light of what does that person think of me or what does this person think of me or what would they think if we did this or what would they think if we didn't do that, we do not live in a way that is redemptive. We do not live in a way that is full. This is a very difficult lesson to learn. Fear of man is ingrained in southeastern Pennsylvania culture. Anabaptist theology and life on many levels is built on fear of man. What will they think? Right, what will they think if I do or don't do that? Because Anabaptist theology is, is built on the Bible held in community, the community becomes very, very central, very, very important to how we live together. Right? That's what I mean by Anabaptist theology, is like the, the way that we live it out. I realize I create a disconnect. Um, that's because we choose to be communal in the way we do things. But when we're not truthfully communal, like when we're, not, when we're not honestly communal, when we don't say what's real about what's going on in real time, then we get afraid of each other and our value of community becomes our fear of community. And then we live in false community because as good church going folks, we would never like say we don't believe in community. We just don't trust it. We don't trust it because we're afraid of it. We're afraid of it for any number of reasons. So there's a few statements that get thrown out there that we have to be aware of. Number one, when I hear people say things like, the church hurt me. Like, I don't want to get involved or I don't want to, uh, um, I'm, I'm, I'm worried about this place or I'm afraid of community because I've been hurt by the church before. No, you haven't. You've been hurt by people. But the church is not that. The church is something else. You might have been hurt by a person or persons, and that person may have been a leader in what is the church. You know, it may have been the very face of what church is. 
I just want to redeem that for you and let you know you weren't hurt by the church. The church can't hurt you. The church is the body of Christ, and Jesus doesn't hurt people. People hurt people. And so, like, l- let that come back. And, and let church for you be what it actually is supposed to be. Um, and let conflict for you remain between persons instead of a vague entity that you can just spend the rest of your life blaming for why you won't hop on board. Another place that fear of man shows up in our lives is uh, when we deal uh, in local church contexts with things that are not biblical, um, which is fine. You know, like there's Sunday school is nowhere mentioned in the Bible. Um, and I have no idea what you're, if you're having conversations about Sunday school, I'm just going to use this because this is a big one right now. You know, if this was 20 years ago, I'd be talking about worship. Um, but like Sunday school is nowhere talked about in, in the Bible. And so uh, if this church were to ever consider, should we keep having Sunday school or should we go about education um, a different way and the way that we train people in the Bible? We're now talking about something that's been in the church for decades. And many of us in this room would be tempted to not say what's real many, because we would be afraid of what someone else would say. Heck, some of you got up this morning and were like, I can't wear that because I'm afraid of what she might think. You know, I mean, like this gets very basic. This gets very, very small. I better make sure I connect with that person today or else uh, I'm not sure what's going to happen this week. Right? I got a text from her this past week and I wasn't sure about that emoji that she didn't send. You know, so like normally she emojis at the end of four texts. Uh, I hope everything's okay. You know, I mean, th- we can get like really, really basic about it. We can get really, really theological about it. Fear of man is in and through everything. Regardless, it all comes from a warped self-perspective. It all comes from a warped view of self. When you and I give in to fear of man instead of fear of God, we are saying, I am not crucified with Christ. There are still parts of me that are alive that I want to hold on to. <laughs> Nevertheless, I, I, most of me lives, but not all of me lives because this part of fear of man still lives. So uh, I have seen this most at work, and with this I'll close. I, I've just seen an amazing example of the conflict between fear of man and fear of God um, going on in a situation with my wife. And... Uh, so I just want to tell you a little bit about what the experience there is and uh, invite you to view it. So my, my, my wife's mom had a stroke at the end of October um, of, of last year. It was a very bad stroke. And uh, um, my, uh, my mother-in-law um, and my wife have never had a solid relationship. Um, it was actually, it was a pretty, a pretty dysfunctional home growing up and was abusive on some levels. And there was a lot of reason for there to not be um, uh, distance or care. We tried to care for my mother-in-law many times over the course of the years, trying to be honoring and whatnot. And there wasn't a lot that was received that other direction. In fact, there was a lot of hurt that was received, particularly toward Sherry, in uh, what her experience was with, um, with my mother-in-law. And so... You know, it was one of those things where it was like it was almost like an act of discipline many times to to engage and to be aware and to help and uh, those kinds of things. But there was a lot of um, misusage. Um, there was a lot of taking for granted. There was a lot of hurt 
uh, a lot of hurt. And so then my mother-in-law has uh, a stroke. And, uh, you know, she and my father-in-law were divorced a number of years ago. And um, there's nobody else, no other siblings or anything like that. My sister, my, my wife has an older sister is mentally handicapped. She can't be helpful in this. So all the weight of care has now fallen to my wife. And uh, like I said, this was not a, a healthy relationship in, in any regard. In fact, it was a very painful relationship. And our kids have known that you know, for the last uh, uh, 16 years while we've had kids. You know, they've seen and observed and watched this. And so watching my wife deal with who it is that she's going to be afraid of now in light of uh, my mother-in-law's stroke has been just amazing because Sherry has completely stepped toward her mom in love. And my mother-in-law is in a, in a nursing care facility. She's on hospice care now. And, uh, and, and here is this history, like 40-year history of lots of pain, lots of hurt, lots of reason for resentment and fear. And Sherry has actually chosen to love in a place where um, there's actually probably good reason to be afraid. Just like when the Judaizers show up with Peter, there's pretty good reason to pull back there. What Peter should have done was step toward it. And what Sherry has done is step toward it. And we were sitting at dinner uh, uh, a month or two ago, and Sherry was talking about her experience with her mom that day. And again, my kids have observed that. My kids are teenagers now. So, you know, young adults and, and beginning to think uh, more deeply and, and uh, uh, philosophically. And, and our oldest just simply said to her, why do you care so much about her? After the way that she's just written you off. And then another one of our kids chimed in with like, yeah, I don't understand why this is like this. And it was this amazing picture of the gospel. Right? It was this amazing picture of a woman who is not justified in what it is that she's receiving. But who, like all of us, is unworthy of the grace that we receive. And my wife lives in this consistent, constant tension of fear of man and fear of God. Like, am I going to keep being afraid of my mom and my memories of her and the resentment that fear wants to birth, or am I going to step toward her in love and love someone who's not worthy? Right? And it's just, just this amazing tension, and I watch her and we struggle in it because uh, my wife's a mercy gift, so her, her heart is bent toward love, I'm a prophet gift. My heart's not bent toward <laughs> love, right? My, my heart's bent toward justice. And there's this like, there's this weird tension in our relationship where, where I'm just like, I look at her sometimes and I'm just like, I do not understand you. I cannot figure out wh why, like where this thing is coming from. And, and it's just, a, just a, a, this amazing work of the gospel where my heart for justice in this is a good thing. You know, it's just not, it's just that I, I'm not allowed to be the channel of it. What I am allowed to be the channel of is joining my wife in stepping toward the very thing that she's afraid of and of choosing to love where fear is. And the transformation that's produced in Sherry's heart has been amazing. Like, she has never walked in freedom like this before when it comes to this relationship. And, and she, it, it's not pie in the sky. It's not easy. 
You know, but, but it, is, it is a place where she has lived her whole life being afraid of this woman. And now she has chosen actively to love this woman in a spot where she could check out and mom wouldn't even know about it, literally. And she's choosing to be present and there and real. I'm, and it's just, it's so mystifying. But if she were here today, she would tell you it's because no other reason than the fact that this is who I am in Jesus. Sherry has been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, she lives. Yet it's not her. It's Christ in her. And the life that she now lives, she lives by her faith in the Son of God who loved her and gave himself for her. So we can actually step toward the things that we are most afraid of. We can step toward the people that we least trust. We can step toward the situations that we don't want and that we didn't ask for. We can actually lean into the change that is hard for us. We can actually pursue that thing that we've been told our whole lives you don't have a right to pursue. We can actually go after the Lord. We can actually, like, pursue gifts. We can seek the supernatural as natural. We can engage in a Walmart parking lot. We can walk toward one another in love. We can have a conflict between leaders publicly and have it be resolved and bring life because we have been crucified with Christ. And it's not we who are living, but it's Christ who lives in us. And the, f- the life that we now live, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and loves us and gave himself for us. And we do away and say no to self-justification because we trust in his justification. Because our self-justification is just self-condemnation. His justification is life and freedom. And that's the beginning of what it means to get free and stay free. Where there is fear, there is bondage. Where there is love, there is freedom. Thank you, Lord, for today. And thank you for the truth that we stand in as your children, that we do not self-justify that your perfect love has cast out our fear. And we choose right now in this moment to bow to you, to fear you and to fear no one else, that it's in you that we stand. And the life that we now live in that standing, we live as people who have been crucified with you and who choose you and who choose who we are in you and who say no to the bondage that wants to find and destroy us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.